Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right, wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Anne Enright, author of a new novel called The Wren, The Wren. Well, the first question I ask of books that don't have either jokes or sex in them is that where did it go? I mean, what, what are these people doing with their, their days and evenings and all the rest of it? it? It's not those characters. Why are we shutting those doors one way or the other? And I think part of it was in a, a sort of feminist way, that when you grow up in a repressive culture, that you're always sexualized. No matter what you do and what you write, it's going to be a woman writing. You're going to be gendered every time you walk out the, the literary door, basically. So that it's not just writing, simple writing, it's female writing or whatever. And, and that's embodied writing because how there was in those days no other way to be female, right? Except in an embodied sort of way. Okay, that was Anne Enright. I'm very happy to have her on the show today. She is one of Ireland's most celebrated writers, winner of the Man Booker Prize back in 2007 for her novel, The Gathering. Anne's latest book is called The Wren, The Wren, available now in the United States from W.W. W. Norton and Company. The Wren, The Wren is a novel about inheritance. It tells the story of the McDera family, across multiple generations with an emphasis on two women in the family, Nell McDera and her mother, Carmel. Carmel's father, Phil McDera, was a celebrated Irish poet who many years ago left his wife and two young daughters when his wife 
was recovering from cancer surgery, a betrayal and a family trauma that continues in this novel to have a lingering effect. The Wren the Wren is a masterful work of fiction, beautifully constructed, beautiful at the sentence level, an absolute pleasure to read with characters who are expertly drawn. Just an excellent book, another excellent book from Anne Enright. My conversation with her is coming up in just a bit. So a quick reminder before we get started that I do a weekly email newsletter. I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter. You can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show each week. And I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me once a week in your inbox, go sign up for my newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Likewise, if you want to join the Other People Patreon community, that would be great. You can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, you can get a book club subscription, and you can help keep this show going into the future. So go sign up over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay, so my guest once again is Anne Enright. Her new novel is called The Wren, The Wren, available from W.W. Norton and Company. Anne Enright is the author of seven novels, most recently a novel called Actress. Over the course of her career, she has been awarded the Man Booker, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, and she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Irish Book Awards. I am so pleased and so honored to have Anne Enright here on this show, and I'm happy to share our conversation with you right now. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Anne Enright, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Wren, The Wren. You know, people talk about Ireland in literary terms all the time and you don't really notice it on the way through. And then later on you realise that actually it is more or less distinctive. The house wasn't full of books, but we went down to the library every Thursday and got two books out. Or there were, there were at least three libraries uh, at, at work. You know, there was the one after school where I read all the books in the children's section before catching my bus home. And then there was, I went to the library with my mother on a Thursday, a different library, and there were also books. And later, there was very territorial stuff about your bookshelf. I was the youngest of five. And so my elder siblings had different books on their bookshelves. Uh, so uh, you weren't allowed to take them. And there was a lot of stealing and borrowing going on. They were quite well, they were quite prized, you know. But I learned to read at the age of three. You did. Who taught you? My mother. She taught you how to read because you were you were a precocious child. I have. I read. was a precocious child. Also, I think because of that that youngest thing at the end of five, the fifth of five, and so when my elder sister went to school, my mother had me all day. I suppose it must have been sort of gorgeous and. Um, taught me how to read and I know this because the neighbours, I mean nobody believes you, you know, so least of all my siblings but um, somebody rang in a radio show and said remember, I remember Anne reading on the curb, I used to do performative reading for the neighbours' children, 
children that ran over to get an encyclopedia and said, what's that word? What's that word? And I would spell it out. Wow. Okay. And yeah. you, this was this was where in, in Ireland? This was in... This is in the suburbs of Dublin in, uh, yeah, very ordinary, uh, low-key kind of suburb. All right. And then, yeah. you know, neither parent is writerly, correct? Yeah, my mother is, uh, is still regrets not writing. Uh, but I never talked about that when she was going to listen to my interviews, but she's so elderly now. I'm released from, <laughs> I can say... Yeah, she said, I'd love to have been a writer. Or she attempted at some stage, you know, to, to write little stories. Um, and I sometimes think about it now, how, you know, she had plenty of time in her hands in her 40s and 50s or 50s and 60s. And, and why she didn't have the confidence or the kind of whatever it just took to get over the threshold and into the world of, of, of writing herself. Did you, did you as a child sense or was it expli- made explicit to you that she did have this longing to be a writer or this like latent talent? She showed me a, a short story once when she had written, when I haven't told this to anyone, Brad. <laughs> she showed me, I came home from school and she showed me a little story she had written uh, that she was going to enter for a competition. And being young, I wasn't all that impressed. Yeah. I mean, the way that our kids don't really care what we do. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a story. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, So I wasn't all that impressed, but I I felt she had put considerable kind of thought into it and effort into it. Do you know, can you recall what the story was about? I I am not ready to talk about that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm not ready. Not yet. Not yet. That's with the memoir. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you, I come from a, like a family, I want to say your grandmother was educated and was yeah. one of the early, like one of the first Irish women to get a degree, like in that generation, right? Is that correct? So that was unusual, yeah. And um, the uh, the integration of the women's colleges into UCD, University College Dublin, which was the main um, sort of university for Catholics, uh, Protestants went to Trinity College, unbelievably. They, they, that she was happening as she was at college in, in Dublin, yeah. So she got her degree from UCD. So that was one of the first w- women, batch, batches of women to be conferred through that process. I, I don't know what she studied or anything. I think she was going to become a teacher. She had languages. Yeah, and she was, an, I think at, at that stage, even she was an orphan. She had some money uh, as an inheritance. So her, that strand of the family had a little kind of going concern up near Dundalk in Ireland, a kind of uh, inn, you might call it. And so there was, there, was, there was money, I mean, compared to a lot of the population at the time. And they, they all became sort of priests, that family. And, her, and the, the, the man she married, who promptly, he didn't promptly die, but he died pretty quick. And they all became priests as well. Wow. So those are the very arcane sort of details. Okay. But did you know this grandmother? Like, was she a par- part of your no. childhood or no? No, I think she, she's at, I think she plays a part in my earliest memory, which was very young. And I think what I remember is her reading in a corner, in a chair, in a particular house. So, but other than that, very fragmented, very fragmentary little kind of thing. I, I have no memory of her. Hmm. She died when I was six, so maybe I should have done. 
Well, I mean, you know, I can't remember anything. I, I, I always, I always complain on this show about how bad my memory is. So. Well, but what is that? I don't know. I, I remember a lot, and um, I don't know. But you don't. Re- I, I mean, I remember being three. You know. Do you really? Well, I remember that moment in the road with people, the reading moment. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I guess and... like the sticky stuff sticks, but I don't, I just am not like, my wife can be like, oh yeah, I remember that day in like junior high when I wore that sweater and I'm just like, what? Oh, you know, some of it is kind of, for some people, they, they tie it in with the clothes. Yeah, I, I have That's no... A, it's a really good trick. I do remember what I wore on the first day of sixth grade because it involves suspender. I wore suspenders that were okay. yellow. You know, it was oh. very, it was ill-advised. Bonus, <laughs> bonus. Okay. So uh, anyway, you are growing up in Dublin and during high school, you went off to what you have characterized in past interviews as a peculiar school in Canada. It but, was kind of odd, yeah. All right, but I'm I'm curious about this because I never got the name of it. I'm like, what what was this place? Was it like an arts school or was it some sort of boarding school? It wasn't. Like, a, it wasn't a cult. Okay, can I say <laughs> peculiar? It wasn't a cult. I I I, I being per, I, I was finishing school at sixteen and I was supposed to go and au pair somewhere and look after some German family's child, um, which was a. a, a great escape for both the German child and for me um, at the age of 16 um, and improve my German. Uh, That was one of the things we did in our family. We went off to improve our languages by looking after children. So yeah, there's this scholarship opportunity. Now, my mother was addicted to scholarships, so she signed the paper. She didn't really realize that it would mean I would leave at the age of 16 to 18 and go to Canada to a a place called Pearson College, uh, an international United World College of the Pacific. So you hear about the United World College of the Atlantic now these days because all the kind of Belgian princesses are going there or the Danish royal family sent their children there. In the days when I was going to the United World Colleges, it was completely scholarship based. Um, There were no fees and there were 200 students from 50 different countries in a corner of Vancouver Island uh, called Pedder Bay. And we were all supposed to go yomping across the countryside in an outward bound sort of way. Right. There were a lot of Canadians, there were 50 Canadians, and there was a bit of what I would now call Yodelehi who, you know, he went out in the woods and right. went up the mountains and whatever. So I didn't do any of that. I stayed strictly inside and smoked. <laughs> As one does. class and st- Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. So you finished school at 16. Is that early in Ireland? For... It is early. Yeah, we were all, yeah, we were, it was, yeah, it was early. But that's, I don't know. Yeah. So how did you do it? Like you just skip grades or something? Oh, I started young and then I had to switch schools and um, they decided they hadn't enough desks in the class and I had to go up some classes. Okay. Okay. And so... I thought was what they told me. They didn't tell me that I could read and write and all the rest of it, which was, uh, you know, that they wanted to give me a bit. I don't know. Yeah, you needed a bit more of a challenge. You were maybe, you were advanced. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. Okay, so you study uh, English and philosophy at university at Trinity. 
I came back to Trinity and went into English and philosophy, which was basically the idea was you will never get a job with this degree. So that was my intention in life. Um, <laughs> Sounds the great. German at this stage, uh, no German, their philosophy, uh, uh, um, completely useless. And then I spent four years in the theatre, not even in the English and philosophy departments. Okay, but let me ask, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, has the, obviously the degree in English has served you well as a writer, but has the degree in philosophy served your fiction in ways that you can ascertain? Um, well, I, I, I did the International Baccalaureate in Canada and I was studying the existentialists and it was all very exciting. And then you come to Ireland and you're studying Locke, Berkeley and Hume. You know, it's, it was just really, really dull. Um, and the philosophy department in 40 years ago was not interested in teaching. It was all, you know, they, they, <laughs> they drifted around in a state of abstraction. Students were kind of surprised if they walked in the door and they said, oh, is that the time? Sort of, that was the approach. Uh, um, they were doing philosophy of language and all kinds of things. I did two courses that were really useful. No, one, I did a course in psychoanalysis in year three or something. So I read all my Freud then. Um, my Freud. I read Freud um, at that stage and that was interesting and that was useful and that did feed into it I suppose yeah. But you, you said that you were involved in the theatre department? Yeah we were just having a ball I mean we were just having the best time there was a little it's not a theatre department there was a little student-run theatre in the front square of Trinity College and we put on plays every single week and we lived there and you know lived and loved and fought and fell out and <laughs> did the whole thing. We were just had the best ever time. And you were writing plays? I did actually. Were you performing? I, well, my children were asking me, um, had I, yes, I have some plays in my deep, deep past. I'm not digging them out anytime <laughs> soon. Yes, the monologue was one of my forms. Um, yeah, and I acted. Uh, yes, I did, and did the lights. I was good at doing lights and operated the lights. And I didn't actually build sets. That was another kind of. That was the, the the lads did that. They'd stay up all night building the sets. It was really amazing. That sounds it was great. So much fun. And you and the performing thing was something you took to. Well, out of that group of people, I have been extremely fortunate when I think back because there were kind of good sort of enclaves of activity and excitement, good groups. Uh, so one good group was that, uh, that gang in college. They set up a, a theatre company called Rough Magic Theatre Company, um, and that's still going today. And it's, it's very hard to kind of conjure those days because there was no employment in Ireland at the time. So everybody who went to college emigrated, every single person, except the fools who were doing theatre and cultural things where you weren't going to make any money anyway. So that they, they, they are the people who stayed. So the engineers and all the, they all went um, and, and we hung out putting on putting on shows. Uh, so uh, Rough Magic were slightly ahead of me, so I did a couple of shows with them, yeah. I did uh, a wonderful t Carol Churchill play called Top Girls and a Wallace Shawn play called Aunt Dan and Lemon, which is a very American, a lovely play. Wallace Shawn is so, so, so nice to do, yeah. Okay, yeah. I saw him once at a dry cleaners, as one does in Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. I, I read a Ulysses with him uh, many years later. I couldn't believe what my life had done. The he whole thing? 
No, it was the Calypso chapter from Ulysses, and I, he played Bloom hmm. for some kind of radio thing in New York. Wow. And I was like, you're such a part of my life, you don't know this. That's exciting. It was fun. So then graduate school, and... Oh yeah, uh, that's yeah, yeah, MA, yes. And studying with Angela Carter, who is a who is a influential mentor of yours. I took a year out. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of half acting, half not acting. I mean, even in those days, I kind of ran the stats a bit and realized that nine to one roles were were male, and that I would only ever play the little sister or the waitress. I got offered some maid parts, you know. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> There's a vampire at the door. Wants to talk to you. So um, <laughs> you're the Irish maid. That was. I was never going to be whatever. I don't know. Whatever. I was never going to be head of cabler. So uh, that took me a while to figure out. I, I applied for a scholarship. Keyword to the University of East Anglia, and they gave me about ten pounds a month more than the dole, the welfare in Ireland. So I took it. And you go um, there, and Angela Carter is one of your the, teachers. She was in the spring term, yeah. And so Angela Carter, I, I had read, and I, I was there in 1986, but I, uh, six, seven, I had read the books as they came out. It was so exciting and so recognizable. And so of the time, there was, they were so intuitively right, or The Bloody Chamber and uh, Nights at the Circus. They were just spot on in the timing in, in 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 the culture and in my life I think so I kind of arrived in Angela Carter's room in the spring term not not uh and like I'm here you know here here I am you know yes it's like as though she knew me as well as I already kind of thought I knew her or in those days because there was no internet you went into a shop and you identified you're a writer and that was a very kind of I was going to say arrogant, but it's very kind of modest, actually. Funny, no, I'm not getting that right. You know what I mean? You just go in and you say, that's it. There it is. Mine, you know? Yeah. And there's no one to tell you otherwise in those days. It was, it was one-to-one, the book and, and the reader. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have said in the past regarding Angela Carter and that educational experience that she was, quote, wonderfully vague and terribly impressive. She was very friendly, but she had nothing really to say about my work. No. I, I, I wrote a sort of fake Angela Carter thing and, and put it into her. It was about a Japanese dance form. That was very Angela Carter. And she just, it was on the desk and she was in, sitting in front of the desk um, and she said, she, she waved, she was quite an elegant woman. And she kind of indicated with her very fine hand. And she said, oh, this is all fine, she said. And then she said, what are you going to do with your life? Sort of thing. And what did you say? <laughs> I said, I'm going, well, later I said, I'm going back home to Dublin. And in those days, for lo- people who published through London, Dublin was Hicksville. I mean, utterly, utterly the back of beyond. And also it was provi- not just provincial, but it was repressed. It was awful. It was all, you know, in, in their heads, you know, but in, possibly interesting in what came out of it. But at that stage, n- not yet, you know. So she said, why? Why would you do that? And I said, there's a man. And there's a man. <laughs> And she said, um, oh, okay. She let me go home. And from there, you go on to work in television. So your route to fiction as a professional writer of books was a little bit circuitous. It wasn't like a direct line straight out of graduate school to publishing novels. It was... Yeah, well, okay, in those days, which is 1986, it is quite a long time ago, there were two creative writing courses in the UK. There were none in Ireland and nobody went to grad school to be a writer and then became became a writer kind of straight off. That was a novel. It was completely new path. It wasn't a career choice. Writing was not a career. It was vocational or you just didn't, I don't know. these days it's very professional very networked people are very sussed and clued in and they know what's what but I was but that wasn't available in those days you didn't decide to be a writer although I did I mean I'm contradicting myself I wanted to be a writer and I got a job by accident in television and given all my precocities which didn't make me happy I want to stress (laughs) just in case you know anyway you think, oh, that must have been all wonderful, but it didn't. It didn't. Didn't bring the kind of joy you might expect. And and uh, so I got a, a good job in TV. So I had to take this good job in TV, which I and I stayed there for six years. A good job doing what? I was a producer and director in TV, which is you know, and I was a child. I was in my twenties, so I was one of those more more commonly known kind of a kind of creative throwaway. You know, you like use them for two years or so. A young creative, I think they became known as. Work long hours, maybe don't get paid a ton. hour weeks, you yeah. get paid. No, actually, in those days, you got paid, but the contracts were short, so 
So the money was very, I suppose, very good, although I wasn't interested in the money and I didn't know what to buy with the money. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, good. You saved it. You made, maybe you put some away for the future. I did save it almost by accident. And that got me a, a, a deposit on a, an apartment later on. So, but I do remember saying, I don't know what, you know, what am I supposed to buy? And someone saying, well, try some clothes. That might be, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, make yourself look pro decent. That would be a start, said someone who subsequently became quite famous. And I'm not going to tell you who. Oh. So, yeah. Any hints? There you go. An actor? No, 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 famous in Ireland. No. Okay. Okay. And so what were you directing and producing? Was it what kind of television? So it was, we were going from boring old fogey telly to exciting young quick cut telly handheld cameras. These were all new. We were getting out of the studio and into VT and it was all on Betamax. So we had these more portable cameras and I was part of that kind of inclination in the station in, in uh, RTE in Ireland. So I did a program called Nighthawks based on the Edward Hopper title of the painting, which was a late night show set in a cafe, very chaotic. And we fed in, there was a television in the corner and we fed in satirical sketches and all kinds of strange stuff. So I did a lot of strange stuff and I was quite usefully strange. You know, I, I, I had lots <laughs> of ideas, you know. It's always nice when you can be usefully strange. And I have to believe too, that there's a line between the fun that you were having at university at Trinity in this theater department and the work that you did in television that must have served sure. you well uh, absolutely it was it was almost natural you know um and i had a contacts list of actors and young professionals as well so yeah and we made things that were all it was in those days everything was three minutes which was a new timing three minutes three minutes three and a half Three and a half. Maybe. Just what, like little sketches, little things. That interview would go on maybe for five and then you'd have a sketch for three, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, and you said, I'm going to quote you back to yourself about this experience. You said, in RTE, which is the name of the, what does that stand for? It stands for Radio Telefiche Aaron. It's in Irish. Okay, okay. So in RTE, I thought, or no, yeah, I thought I had learned all I needed to know about human ambition and its oh essential God, yeah. silliness. It's interesting to see how institutions work. It's interesting to see how authority is claimed or denied. It's interesting to see how paranoia accumulates. Oh, yeah. That was unexpectedly wise of me back in the day. I was um, going to say. <laughs> but, like, can you elaborate a little bit? Like, what is it you learned? I mean, I, I get the human ambition in film and television. I mean... I live in so Los in Angeles. TV but the is fundamentally, I, mean, I don't know if it is fundamentally stupid, okay? So, but TV, you know, you might have a great ambition to produce a really crap quiz show that does very well. Yeah? Yeah. So that your cutthroat ambition is to make a stupid quiz show that does really well. <laughs> yeah. That's, isn't that odd? Very strange. And it was not something that I, I take it you were interested in all that much, like to. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I, yeah, I certainly did. I was very young and I don't think I knew how to, I didn't have a professional attitude. I, I was, a, you know, I, I, had, I, I had lots of ideas and I ran around the place 
filming and making them and all the rest of it. I had no management kind of ideas of upper management and I was still very bad at being told what to do and not really brilliant at telling other people what to do either, you know? I was a bit of a lone operator, maybe. But probably very useful creatively, I have to believe. I was creatively. No, I do admit to that usefulness, yes. And what about paranoia? Like, was this the kind of paranoia that happened? I mean, I, the, the way that I made sense of it is thinking of, like, past office environments that I've been in that become kind of consuming in terms of their yeah. internal politics and people trying to advance their own agendas or keep their jobs or take somebody else's job. I mean, that sort of stuff is yeah. just part of the work life, it seems. Yeah, and unusually, I think, in in, in telecommunications in Ireland at the time, we, we, were, we were put there to do a kind of interesting, lively show. But the people who ran the station really disliked the fact they couldn't control it. So um, there were political scandals even that came out of the show that caused the higher management in RTE great uh, difficulties. So you'd be wondering why you're always editing on the weekends, you know? Yeah. Why couldn't you get, you know, why was your schedule just the worst? (laughs) And it was this slow grinding down of 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 the people that they didn't wish to advance because you were going to be trouble. I mean, that was just, I think, true. So it was during this time that you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, beginning to work on your debut novel, The Wig My Father Wore. Which is set in TV. I mean, the first thing I did was I, I used to go home and work on short stories at the, at the weekend. I'd spend the weekend writing short stories because they they were somehow graspable within that time frame. I could go back the week, the next weekend and they'd still be somehow manageable. I think a novel needs needs more time, more time. But yeah, so I left RTE and I started writing afterwards uh, The Week My Father Wore, which is, you know, one of those titles. So you left the TV job, you had some savings and did that sustain yeah. you through the writing of that debut? Uh, the save no we were poor as church mice we were really poor i mean we had a place to live so by modern standards that was we were we were doing very well <laughs> right <That's, laughs> maybe one meal really, a day one meal a day and a roof you're good right <laughs> yeah it was well you know it's really hard to be poor now it really is expensive to be alive in any you know so it's very hard for artists that they can't starve in their garret because the garret you know is it costs five million bucks in Manhattan or Brooklyn, whereas the garret, it costs a bomb, you know. So it's hard to do that. But it was easy enough to do in Dublin at the time, which was much more, uh, uh, you know, had that kind of communal feel. And and nobody had work anyway in those days. So it was easier to be, to hang out and be artistic. And And that that has changed in Dublin much as it has changed in the States and like New York. Yeah, really sadly. Yeah, because um, although you try and rejuvenate the artistic heart of of the city, because the, the art is, the artistic, the creativity is part of the kind of tourist draw and the commercial draw and everything. So they realize that, that, uh, but it, but they outprice the people who give them the kind of that kind of nice status. They they get they ha- they don't really treasure them. I don't think, or the system doesn't treasure them. So after this uh, initial publication of your debut novel, 
you're sort of off and running like you've published no i think that whole decade was really anxious and 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 i try to explain to young people now when you published a book back then nothing happened well nothing much happens usually these days either i mean it depends who you are i guess but i mean it's like it's very hard to break through well yeah but when i say nothing happens it's like wednesday and you've published a book and nobody asks you for an interview in the, I, I, I actually, I don't think that book was reviewed in Ireland. It was reviewed in, in, in the UK, in, which is in, in London, but it wasn't reviewed in Dublin. Um, so you're just saying, oh yeah, I wrote a book and there it is. And it might be in a shop or it might be in all the shops. But you're not going to, I think I sold a thousand copies or something in a year, you know. I don't know. But And there were no prizes. You weren't shortlisted for anything. There was nothing to be shortlisted for. There might be one prize and they'd shortlist really, really strange books that you'd never hear of again. Anyway, nobody heard of The Week My Father Wore again for a long time anyway. But have subsequently come back to it after the successes you've had with subsequent books. I suppose. Books. Oh, maybe, maybe. And, you know, I know you've talked about this ad nauseum, but I do have to at least note the fact that uh, your book, The Gathering, won the Booker Prize in 2007. I, I mention it just because it's such a such a big moment for an author to win one of the major prizes in the sense that I think it elevates your uh, visibility. Like, right, you, you must have brought you a lot of readers. Uh, hugely so. And actually, but when I say nobody, uh, nobody ever kind of realized where you're... I, I did okay, and I did okay for the next few books, and I wasn't completely, it wasn't... Some people said, oh, that came from nowhere or you were discovered by the booker. I actually was doing, I was get, it was getting better. I was getting more coverage. I was, I don't mean to exaggerate. Uh, I was getting, even, I even got an advance from, from one of my books. That, oh. That, that, <laughs> so I go, oh, okay. Yeah. So it was, it, it, was ha- it was starting to happen. And I also got rid of all the anxieties of my, 20, of my 30s. And in my 40s, I just, I had kids, so I didn't have time to be fretful. And I wrote quite effectively for, you know, so I wrote The Gathering when they were quite small in 2004, when the kids were quite little and I had nothing else to do. So, but that was really, it's really busy being the parent of, of small children. So to have the, the booker was like an extra job and all the jobs I had already. It was like a third job of work, it took an enormous amount of time. And it was very alarming. What you just said is very interesting to me. Uh, I will couple what I'm about to say with something that I think I read about you with respect to your reading habits. You were a voracious reader as a child. That reading habit followed you all the way into adulthood. But then you have two young children and suddenly you're not reading much at all. Or, yeah, you're not reading much at all, at least not in the way that you previously were. So that's interesting that you get into this space where you're, the input is low, but you have this huge backlog of all these books. Like you were a really mm. good reader. I, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the thing I want to pair that with is what you just said about not having time to be precious about the writing and really only having very maybe small windows or very concentrated periods of time to write at all because you were so busy with uh, sure. being a mother. And that actually served the work well. Well, when the babies were small, okay, you, as soon as they started to sleep, you would start to type. I mean, you were, it was like a, start, it was like a starting, starter's pistol. And then sometimes a baby will sleep for three hours straight. I mean, sometimes they might sleep all afternoon. You get enormous amounts of work done. Right. Because you're going to be interrupted any second. And if you're not, you've, you've you know, 
you've got you've got work done. Whereas in my twenties and thirties, I'd I'd have anxiety, I'd have procrastination, I would I had little rituals, you know, I'd kind of make my workspace really precious and right and clean and nice and scented maybe and the whole thing right and then i would you know have an idea or not have an idea it's all bullshit it's just like you're it's in front of you you have to work it but you know so i had no other i had no other option but to work i was highly productive but i didn't take in that much in those years so something you have said uh, about winning the booker prize uh you said what happens is that the world changes very quickly, but you don't. The world suddenly looks at you with different eyes, but you're not different. That's like, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, you know, you're working, 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 publishing these books, having some incremental success, and then suddenly you win this prize and there's probably interview requests. There's a lot of readers, people showing up to your readings in larger numbers and kind of seeing you in a more elevated way. And yet you're the same old writer in person for you've always for been. For sure, with the same problems that you had before creatively, except with this extra light on the process. So it takes a while to gather in the darkness around yourself again, so you can huddle in there and, 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 and mm, do, your, do your writing thing. So yeah, but people's it, because it's a fantasy, isn't it? It's a kind of idealized thing. You win a prize and, you know, it's it's like ding. <laughs> it's like you're the girl with the prize. I mean, it's lovely. It's a lovely thing to have happen, right? It's not something, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's great. Yeah. You, you embrace it in a, you know, in, in a broad sense, but I get that you would have to sort of adjust to it. And like you say, gather in the darkness and get back to a place where you can sort of forget about it. Yeah, it also disrupts some of your connections with people you've known a long time because you know you have you've you your um, materially your life has changed apart from anything else, and so the the unchangingness of other people's lives becomes really starkly apparent to them. So it's not always enjoyed by people around you one way or the other. Like writer, like especially writer friends, like people, colleagues, and or just people generally. Mm. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> it's very, it's very diplomatic of you. Mm. Uh, well, we'll get now, uh, just in the interest of time, to the new book. And I, I'm always interested in where books begin for people. And I think I read that this book began with a comment that someone made to you years ago, a man talking about leaving his sick wife. Is that well, the is that the seedling for this book, or is it something else? Let's not think in terms of one starting moment, okay? Because a book starts going when you have two ideas, uh -huh. uh, at least. So when you have a problem, and a problem has two, uh, you know, a problem has two sides to it. So, but but yes, I, many years ago, I mean, I, I was I, I met this writer. He had custody issues. He was organizing something on the phone. He said, "Sorry, I uh, yeah, no, we split up. My wife got sick, and we split up." And I thought, "Oh dear." And 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 later, I was wondering, did he mean that his wife went mad and dumped him? Was that you know, it's a mental illness? And then I realized, no, that man, that man 
could, didn't like his wife being sick and he walked out and left her with a young child and now it's all very fraught. And he, uh, um, so that was kind of interesting because the response of some of the men, the kind of men in relationships with women, you talk to, you talk to girlfriends and they, say, they talk about how their, their, their partners are when they get sick and it can be quite an odd conversation because they really don't like it and they don't like it in some, and they can go kind of peculiar, you know? Yeah, that is true, right? I mean, I, I'm I think thinking. It is I, true. If I'm if I'm being honest, I have to cop to this. Like, if my wife gets sick, I'm like, oh shit! Like everything gets destabilized. <laughs> I'm trying. You know, yeah. it's, it's hard. It's hard in a family, especially with young children. Sure. But I need to be, like, I need to be a better like caregiver. I mean, some well, of it's I just some of it's just not... practical. You know, just practical time pressure kind of stuff. But it stinks when somebody's sick. <laughs> It does practically, but what you're also maybe thinking about is how you forget things when there's. <laughs> so I might say, oh, I have to go for a test. Uh, uh, my husband, who's great, will forget that I have to. And he goes, oh, yeah, that. Ooh, yeah. I forgot. Right. Oh, I, no, I, no, I have something else on. I can't bring you for that. <laughs> He's like, oh, I told you, I told you. So what's going on is it's, it is quite a fugitive, you know, quite, it's quite. Anyway, in, in, in my book, Phil, who leaves his wife when she's sick, you can see that it's not, he's, it's not a callous, cruel assessment of, of the relationship. He's not weighing the relationship and saying, this is, there's nothing here for me. He's anguished by it. He's agitated. He's, it renders him chaotic and he doesn't know what to do. His wife is sick. His wife is seriously sick. This is really, he doesn't, he can't compass it. He doesn't know what's going on. Um, and so he, he, he doesn't abandon them. He doesn't kind of sign off. He kind of chaotically leaves, although that's not how it's experienced in the book by one of the daughters who thinks that he walked out on a particular day. Okay, so I want to I wanna elaborate on Phil, but before we get any further, I just want to make sure I'm clear. You said that books begin with two things, like working in opposition to one another. You sort of have a problem. So there is the one thing, which is this notion of a man leaving his sick wife. And then what's the other thing? Um, well, the other thing didn't arrive well okay okay it did arrive okay it did I don't want to be too schematic um but there was the poetry okay which brings us to Phil and forgive me if I'm screwing up this pronunciation Phil McDera yep okay Phil McDera is kind of the patriarch mm -hmm. of this novel this of this family and he is known as and I'm quoting here the finest love poet of his generation He's a great Irish poet, kind of like a grand old man of letters in the Well, he's grand enough. Grand enough. Like kind of a, there's something old school uh, yeah. about the way that you characterize him. And it's just a great character because he's, uh, he's kind of villainous, but, you know, you're not painting in black and white here. You know, there's a big gray area in the way that you draw characters, which is lovely. And the relationships are complicated. Obviously, the relationship with his wife, uh, you know, does not survive her illness, her very serious illness. Except she, she, it does, it does, they, 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 they never stop loving each other as, as they keep declaring, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, really but weirdly. that's, it's complicated is the, yeah. is the thing, you know, but uh, you 
consistently over the course of your career have written about family. You're so good at writing about family relationships. And I just have to say too, that there is something effortless seeming about the way that you write. It just feels like someone's just talking to me. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, haha, took, took me yeah. years. But I don't yeah. know. Like, it's just, there's a great music to your writing. Just wonderful. And okay. there's great nuance in all of these characters. You have, uh, just so for people listening who have not had a chance to read yet, you have Phil, who is this, this poet, uh, his wife, Terry, who winds up getting breast cancer. He leaves her for what they call the American wife. Her name is Connie. She plays sort of like a peripheral role in the novel. Yeah, there's a little kind of chaos between there's a woman called Bunty and there's another woman um, in Greece. So there are a couple of, of, of affairs right. before he settles with Connie in America. Yeah. Right, right, right. So then, uh, so Phil and Terry have two daughters. There's uh, Carmel and Imelda. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then Carmel, who is a more central uh, character in the book than her sister, has a daughter named Nell. So this is a generational story. Nell is a key figure in the book. And, you know, as you were talking earlier about your university experiences at Trinity in this theater program, I could see like little bits, like little small brushstrokes maybe in Nell from those days that you were maybe drawing on. Is that right? Like the, the friend group? There's something sort of similar in the way that you characterize. Yeah, I mean, people ask, how can you write about a young person? The better question is, how can you write an old person? Because you haven't been old yet. So no, no one's surprised if you write someone who's old. But I have been asked, how can you write somebody who's in their 20s? And I mean, I, I have been in my 20s. I mean, that's it's like, and some of Nell's uh, voice or, or um, sort of the impulse in, in the writing is close to the early short stories that I wrote. So there's a kind of modernist sensibility at play. So Nell is kind of, uh, and it goes back to the week my father wore, which is set in TV. So she's very online and she's very uh, busy with lots of um, apps and things like, you know, so so there's quite a modernist thing. She's also in a in in a poor relationship and that breaks and uh, breaks down the prose a little fragments it a bit um with turns it into Phelim. Phelim is this Phelim, Phelim, Phelim. Phelim. man that is a names. not a good guy i mean you know again he's not the devil but he's got you get some the issues. feeling that he has a different life in which he's a better person yeah but this is this is the room and this is the relationship sorry this is the place where he's not a good person right and, and he has a moment where he says, what are we doing? And, she's looking, and she looks at him thinking, what? Who are you? Yeah. Why are you asking me this question? So they do kind of create each other or they create that space themselves as well. I mean, Nell, I'm really reluctant to use the word complicit, but it's seen very much through Nell's eyes, um, this very bad relationship which she's very interested in and not interested in. It's quite binary what happens by the end. Either it works completely for her, it's very thrilling and interesting, or it doesn't work and it's just really shoddy and awful. Well, here again, I love the complexity of the way that you draw this. Like, it's not just like, oh, he's awful to me and he's the bad guy and I'm the good girl. Like, like you say, she's into it at times and even yeah. in ways that are... Uh, like she, she's sometimes into the way that he mistreats her. You know what I'm saying? It's complicated is the point. Totally. Uh, well, y- y- I-, I think that he, yeah, no, totally. 
she is into it. So that is, uh, you know, kind of alarming and interesting to me. So I was, uh, I was, th that was one of the things that I was quite keen to explore, but I found it for quite a reach and very, very kind of emotionally draining to kind of, it's not really a space that I would, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Well, I, and it's believably drawn. I mean, I know you've been in your 20s, so you have those experiences, but there are big differences, I find anyway, between me and like younger generations. And uh, I don't know if I have those experiences, so just to clarify. <laughs> just no, no, to no, clarify. but I just mean yeah. like the way that you draw a person in their 20s and like contemporary life is impressive just because I'd never, you know, I had no doubt. Like it was right there. It felt very Great. real and vital. And I mean, there are things that I love doing. She talks about her friends, Lily this and, and, and Maya that, and we never see the friends. And that, that's to me, that's just a, a, a woman of 22 as she is there. That, that, that's true to how you talk. Well, you're talking about your friends. I'm sure you're, you're probably learning from your children too, the, you know, by observing them in terms of the way that young people interact. and Some don't... of the online communications. Yeah. Some of the kind of stupid, funny stuff in the texting, that, that kind of... Yeah, I'd take that from them, yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay. So, I, you know, I then want to talk to you about like thematic concerns in this book, which I think you have described as uh, like, this is a book about inheritance. It's about, uh, of both trauma and wonder. So with this Phil character in mind, uh, you know, he is Nell's grandfather. And he is a figure who kind of looms large in her imagination. I think there's some connectivity between the two of them in terms of their artistic temperament. Mm -hmm. Like Nell feels very much like she's got some of that artistic brilliance in her that she, I'm sure, conceives of as being drawn from her grandfather who was not super present in her life in the physical sense, but who has this kind of mythic quality to him. You know, the way that but he she... left these poems. Right. She can read, he, she reads his poetry. So he's present, or that version of him is, is very available to her. And she says in the book, when things were bad, I would curl up with Phil and sweeten the hurt. Mm -hmm. And there's something lovely about that. And that would be kind of, I mean, that's got to be, I mean, I guess I'll never know. Uh, but, you know, you write a bunch of books, leave behind this sort of like stack of, whatever it is, you know, literature and then generations mm. from now. I mean, I wish my, I had my great, great grandfather's novels to read. That would be interesting to me. You know, who wouldn't like that? Especially if you feel a sense of connection to it. Um, that is kind they of, they would probably be more interesting to than your, to you than your parents' novels, which would just be utterly boring and like, Oh my God, so dated. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody who you like, you never met or who had some real generational mm. distance mm -hmm. from you, you know, you definitely mm -hmm. feel that. And now, and it's a way I think of her, working to towards some kind of self-understanding, you know, the way that we make sense of ourselves through our parents and through our ancestors and sort of piecing it together. But it's a lovely portrait of, you know, multiple generations of a family 
And I'm so impressed with how like fluid it seems, the way that I, I remained oriented throughout the text without ever feeling uh, lost, despite the fact that you're jumping from narrator to narrator, you're switching POV, you're doing a lot mm-hmm. of things that I, I think on the surface might be quote unquote, like inadvisable, like, oh, you know, people could get lost, but I didn't. And oh, I'd love to hear you talk about those kinds of choices, you know, working through the story, building a sense of cohesiveness, even though you're shifting POV and narrator, like the creative challenge of that. So, yes, I think that that book would have been hard to write if I'd planned to write it. But because I was following the way it was, the way it grew, I was just shepherding it somehow. I was just herding it through from page one to page 250. So, uh, or, uh, um, so it has an improvisatory and spontaneous kind of feel in the, in the early writing. And then at some moment you realize where, what, what the book requires, which is happens, it's, it's just how I work on every book. And then you have to structure it. So there, the, the first really big shift is because Nell is very immediate and her problem is very immediate. So that w- should one or more or less interest the reader or not. I mean, they will know fairly early on whether they're going to stay with this book. And then we have a kind of shift to her mother's point of view, which is much more old school, much more it's past tense and it's a third person, close third person, you know, third person narrative it's less immediate and it's more kind of normal by some standards i actually found carmel the mother the hardest to write because carmel's so pragmatic and everyone tells her she has no imagination i mean that's what happened to her she locked down she toughened up she got through she 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 closed off her way of thinking very young so that she's just but actually it's quite it's 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 quite like a lot of ordinary naturalism where you're not getting much by way of lyrical, the lyrical or the metaphorical or the imaginative. So it's just, a, it's, it's a very plain text for me. Um, so I suppose the challenge would be to go in at a moment where you're in media res, you're in mid flow. So you're, you're, so you're going to be interested enough again, pretty early on. So it's a, just a series of narrative hooks of the more basic kind, I suppose. But because the discourses, the way Nell talks and the way Carmel thinks are so different, that's the thing you have to try to make people not see until later when it makes more sense. Well, and you know, you just touched on this, but another thing that this book draws very well is this generational difference between women and the circumstances of their lives. Uh, yeah. I believe you said, you know, uh, you, you refer to it as like women switching from Martha's to Mary's from generation to generation. Some yes. get to tend and others to believe. So Nell is a believer. She's passionate. She's going to go out and she's going to make the same kind of mistakes Phil did. I mean, somebody said, is Phelan like the bad guy? She is, is like, is Phil the bad guy and Phelan? She repeats that mistake. But actually she is that mistake. She embodies the, 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 the luxury of making mistakes. So that freedom to be able to go out and be stupid and do the wrong thing and figure it out is, is something that she claims for herself. And Carmel would never claim that for herself. Carmel keeps it all going um, and ha- would have no interest in making mistakes whatsoever. Well, speaking of making mistakes, uh, something that I noted about your writing is how good you are at writing about sex. Okay. And is that a mistake? N- 
<laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm speaking of mistake. I'm speaking of like, like Nell's relationship mistakes. Uh, you know, yeah. that's what I meant. But uh, you know, this is something that cuts against I think what might be characterized as like traditional Irish conservative ideas about what should be on the page. I know things have obviously changed, but you're a part of that change. Like this is part of the human experience and you kind of go right at it. And I just, not everybody's able to write about it well. And yet it's such an elemental part of our existence. And I always appreciate it. I always appreciate it when someone is sort of unflinching about it on the page. Well, the first question I ask of books that don't uh, have either jokes or sex in them is that where did it go? I mean, what what are these people doing with their their days and evenings and all the rest of it? it? It's not those characters. Why are we shutting those doors one way or the other? There are antecedents in the Irish tradition. Uh, a writer called John McGahern wrote really really sad, horrible sex, basically. I mean, it was really in a very repressed and claustrophobic culture. And he was banned way back in the day and lost his job and all kinds of things. They're they're, they're kind of glancing references, but they exist. And then there's Joyce who wrote the opposite. It was kind of glorious, kind of libidinous rush of, you know, Molly Bloom or whatever, where, where he, he never wrote about sex proper. Ulysses is one of, a book where everybody thinks about everything and does basically everything except have sex, which happens <laughs> off. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, he's, he's, he's quite, quite wonderful and a bit weird uh, choice in some ways. Um, so the, it does kind of, it does exist. And I, I, I think part of it was in a, a sort of feminist way, that when you grow up in a repressive culture, that you're always sexualized. No matter what you do and what you write, it's going to be a woman writing. You're going to be gendered every time you walk out the the literary door, basically. So that it's not just writing, simple writing, it's female writing or whatever. And 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 that's embodied writing because how other how there was in those days no other way to be female, right? Except in an embodied sort of way. So Edna O'Brien was also out, you know, considered outrageous in her time. And so it's an honorable tradition, I suppose. It's kind of, I, I do on the family WhatsApp, I do say, nobody has to read this book, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's compli- entirely optional, right? Yeah. And, you know, my siblings say, oh, I wouldn't understand it anyway. So, <laughs> said my sisters. <laughs> like, well, yeah. But, you know, it's like there's a courage that I think writers must, the good writers must have. You have to be willing, whether it's writing about sex or writing about other, I don't know, delicate subject Mo- matter. You like know, if, money. Money is a great subject. Uh, there's lots of, you know, and there's, there, there's a lot of uh, violence in this book, in this small violence in this book which was extremely difficult to write. And I knew also at the time that this was also taboo, you know, this, these kind of small assaults in the book. Well, I feel like your life and career have tracked, when you think about like, I'm not like the expert on Irish cultural history, but there have been some pretty seismic shifts in yeah. Ireland over the course of your lifetime. And I think your work reflects that and maybe like work like yours has helped to occasion some of these shifts, you know? I, I just, you know, I'm such a believer in change. I mean, I, 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 and the past is not a nostalgic place for me. 
because I mean the drive for change in, in my 30, 30 years of writing has been really part of the push that gets me to the page for sure. And it's a kind of truth telling that you say, actually, this is the reality of people's lives. I mean, that might be part of part of the impulse to sit down at the desk, but you really there is a kind of fierceness available to you when you say, oh, I need I need to tell it the way it is. All this bullshit now. You know? Yeah, I relate to that so yeah. much. I was raised, I mean, Catholic, which I don't think that's necessarily s central to what I'm talking about, but it's certainly a part of it. And I think maybe this is something that a lot of writers share and a lot of the reason why the act of writing is attractive to us is this idea that like whatever we're seeing in our day-to-day -day lives, whatever is kind of appearing at surface level with people isn't the full story. Sure. Or it, there's something artificial about it or something hidden about what's actually going on. And it's such a great relief to sit down and to try to put it down in the way that you actually believe it to be happening. To be. But it's not necessarily a destructive act or a paranoid act. It can be, it can draw things together, even as, you know, it, it can be a resolution rather than a, a kind of uh, exposure, you know? Mm. It's not just exposing things for the sake of it. So uh, a question that is related, I mean, like to sort of segue from writing about sex and taboo and gender uh, to writing about plot might not seem, or, or to talking about plot might not seem like uh, a connected issue, but it is in the way that you conceive of it. And I find this very interesting. You have said about your own work, I do story as opposed mm -hmm. to plot. And you've, you have also said that there's something gendered possibly about this difference between story and plot where men are more likely to want to make a plot which is more machine-like, you know, to kind of construct a machine, you know, out of their novel or whatever, whereas uh, a story is something that's more concerned with insight uh, as opposed to a plot which is more about effect. Mm. That's interesting to me. I've never quite heard it said that way. Is, do you agree with yourself, first of all? Do I agree with myself? <laughs> a very good way of putting it. Um, or do I still agree with myself? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, um, actually, even when I was in University of East Anglia and everybody was obsessed by plot and I don't have a plot and what will I do with my plot and how do I... And I didn't quite twig what was going on. I didn't quite understand it. And I may be talking about the thrillers used to be more male form and those 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 genderings don't really hold true anymore perhaps so yeah excitement of one kind and it and and cinema has film has a lot to do with that you need something that will that you could if you're going to turn it into a movie has has excitement uh, obstacles and resolutions and all the rest of it so I'm alert to this because those structures, those narrative structures, go back to Shakespeare. Um, they they, they, they uh, go back to the Greeks. They're very, um, they're very intuitive for for us. You know, it's very hard to get away from the three act structure. So when I'm when I'm worried about that, and for uh, I will look at that graph of the three act structure. I keep it on my computer, and I look at it, and I wonder, am I anywhere near it? Um, the, like the, but retroactively you're doing this you're sort of writing yeah. letting, like letting yourself create yeah. and then maybe in the edit applying some well yeah in the edit but also you are looking for those moments it, it is an emotional arc so I'll do the, I'll do the emotional arc without the burning buildings and the 
guns and all the other kind of things that might go with a very plotty plot. Okay, but I, I got to say, like this, you know, this way of characterizing it crystallized, like how I was feeling as I was reading your book, story versus okay. plot. Like the other thing that I would add is that, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is that there's a great sense of someone talking to me. Like right. these are beautiful lines, and I know from uh, experience that these are this is a you know these are crafted sentences that are giving this effect um you know it's not like you just talked into your phone and dictated the novel or maybe you did but uh but it feels it has the energy of the spoken so when you characterize what you do as story that makes it make sense to me it's like yeah i really feel like someone was telling me a great story but yet it didn't have, like you say, the guns and the bombs and the explosions and all of the kind of conventions of what we think of traditionally as plot, particularly in the context of film and television, where you're hitting beats and, you, you know, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. sort of playing on these ways that we're conditioned to experience story. And it was lovely in that way because it felt really human. There was something unexpected about it. It was propulsive. It was every bit to me, even if, if, if not more so, propulsive in the way that maybe a more conventionally plotted book would be. And I'm like, wow, there's something. I have to believe that the writing process is a place where you really allow yourself to be free and that there is something deeply intuitive about the way that you work through one of your stories. Um, yes. As opposed to preconceived where you're outlining. I think you kind of said this earlier. You're not doing that. You're sort of showing up and working yeah. your way through. Uh, and I took away from it as a writer. I, like, I, I got to say, this doesn't always happen to me when I read a book, but when I finished your book, I had a great writing day. Oh, good. It like opened me up. I was like, oh, yeah, oh, like good. it freed me up. So thank you. Yeah. And it had the, yeah, it had kind of like a freeing effect in the sense that, uh, I don't know, I, f- I could feel the way that you maybe give yourself a wonderful creative permission when you are sitting down to write. Like you seem to have a freedom that mm-hmm. I like <laughs> and want more of. Good. I, uh, yeah. I mean, you can become a bit schematic. So you might, you know, some writers need their ducks in a row. They need to know where they're going before they go there. Um, I like taking a line for a walk, just seeing, you know, or, or, or a more organic kind of way of growing, growing the characters and then seeing what they need or seeing what that implies. And I like those stories that you hear and you don't quite know why you like them, what they mean. So I like those ones. Well, they're very um, dimensional. You know, these people feel so yeah. fully realized and real. And, you know, we talked at the top about uh, the origins, you know, of, of kind of having this notion of a man leaving his sick wife and you know, you then build out from there. Like, I'm, I'm curious to know, because you work sort of intuitively, how long it took before you had the generations sort of sorted out in this book. You know what I'm saying? And how long did it take yeah. you to realize that this was Nell's story centrally? It's also, I mean, the, the other characters also have quite a lot to say, but I really do feel like this is a, a Nell novel. See, I don't know how long it took because I never, I, it's like a long haul flight. I never I question how many hours are left. So I don't know at what stage, but maybe in a, about a year in. Sometimes when I'm writing a book, I'll, I'll have the previous generation and I'll dump them out of the book. Like I dumped the grandparents out of a book called The Green Road. I dumped a lot of history out of that. So I'm always, as I'm building, I'll build the back history for the characters, which 
in a small place like Ireland, it's really entirely possible because people don't move and things happen in, in locations that you can access and, you know, you can know quite a lot about your characters if you go deep into the history. But anyway, so I was in yeah, the generational thing. So Carmel is this tough minded woman, very, very locked down. OK, very locked down where we just couldn't imagine things because imagining things was a mistake. OK, that was a big mistake during COVID was to think too much. Right. You just had to get on with it. And then there was the poetry. So the poetry was on my daily walks. I would go up Kalani Hill, a local park and see the spring, the, the spring, that spring of 2020 was incredibly moving. And I was hyper fixated and slightly ecstatic in this response to nature, nature. I understood what nature poetry could be about somehow. And that, that was the other side of Phil. So Carmel was there for a long time. And I was trying to write Phil's poems, which also appear in the book for a long time. And those were the two poles of, of romance and anti-romance, you might say. Then I decided what would happen if Carmel, well, Carmel wasn't even going anywhere. I thought maybe if she got pregnant, <laughs> it's my favorite thing. I got a character pregnant. <laughs> it takes a lot of planning. You know, it's like, how would that happen? Uh, easily, you know, whatever. And as soon as Nell came out, I had, which she, you know, as soon as she was born, she had that quality, which children do when they're born of being entirely herself. So that, that the nellness of Nell, the kind of completeness of her human of her personality from from the get go, I realized that this character is going to be what she is. She, she's incontrovertible. She has this kind of imperative. She's always going to be herself. So her first words, uh, Carmel says, might as well have been Asher Fuckett. You know, she's a child. She's absolutely heedless and fantastic. And so that was that kind of energy with this quite stolid maternal figure. And I thought, okay, here we go. Here is now. So the book came with Nell. Yeah, the two and things, two things working thing. in opposition, you know, this Absolutely. great yeah. kind of like, like tension, like loving tension, but like just different, yeah. two different characters entirely. With a problem, which is that they do love each other entirely, as Nell says, but they can't get along. Yeah, right. <laughs> which, you know, and it, it's very like a, insightful this book is in terms of the way that family dynamics work you, you know this is again this is something you're sort of known for and it's making me wonder because you just touched on this about ireland and how people kind of stay rooted oftentimes there in way to a place in ways that maybe in other countries it's not quite so prevalent and so you know you can really get to know a place you can really get to know people you can really get to know your family because people are living in relatively close proximity and it's a, and it's a small country you know like in terms of landmass so mm -hmm. maybe that has helped to inform this part of your writing it's part of why you're so good at drawing out these characters in the way that they operate relationally well, they leave and come back. I mean, in the Green Road, which I just mentioned, the, the sons in particular go away and come back for Christmas. And the thing about Ireland is you don't have the option of coming back for Christmas or not. Nobody stays away. Right. It's just not possible. Right. <laughs> Got to come home. Got to come home. That's the only, you know, and because uh, it, of the history of emigration, home is, gets set in this kind of nostalgic 
aspic, you know, that then it's going to be the same. Well, that's how Phil is, right? He's like, you can, what does he say? Like, you never can leave or he's in the States, you know, in that part of his life after the marriage ends and he's got the new American wife and there's this interview that he does. It feels sort of Charlie Rose-ish almost. Yeah, I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with Charlie Rose, but a little bit. yeah, you know, that used to be the place for like the highbrow interview that I think was coveted by a lot of uh, cultural figures and it had that sort of vibe and he's talking about how he like never left Ireland even though he's lived in the States you know it's always with you he says yeah it's always with I you. never I never left so his daughter is looking at this going oh okay <laughs> you never <laughs> you never left isn't that nice yeah isn't that nice <laughs> have you ever left I guess you went to Canada like have you did you I ever... really tried to leave I really have tried to leave you know I mean there are times you just say I have to get out of this place it's just but actually it's really good I mean yeah. I'm glad I stayed it's lovely it is it's it's a nice place but a, a, a really good place to write from and to but I you know in my 20s I would have lived anywhere I was I would have uh, packed a bag not even a large bag and I would have gone anywhere so uh, I was in Canada for those two years. I was in in, in Norwich in the in England um, for the year of the uh, uh, the MA. I did six months in New York at one stage, but I was really over and back home, so that wasn't really New York, you know. Mm-hmm. It was well, transient. I want to go. I was supposed to go to Ireland uh, with my wife, and then her father got very ill, so we had to cancel our trip, and so I have not yet gotten to go. And it's I would love to go and. I have this fantasy like of uh, being able to really spend time in Ireland and Scotland and then like, the northern part of England, which I have not yet Lovely. visited. Yeah. I, I want to get out into the country a little bit. I mean, I want to see Dublin, but I also I want to see like those cliffs and those green hills. <laughs> yeah. It's so pretty. I, I just spent a week walking to in County Cork and Kerry and to pre-publication to kind of crack the anxiety of I had to do something really difficult. Yeah. Um, uh, to because the to brace for impact of publication it's just awful, so I went for long walks with my husband down a hiking down in Bear. Actually, I'm too old old for hiking. It's just terrible. <laughs> it's really hard. We did hours and hours, but it's astonishing. It is so beautiful. Mm. I read too that you were into Ashtanga. I was reading. I mean, this is some past interview. God Almighty! Yeah. Still, I was I'm, the question that arose for me because I've done some of that. Is that did it survive the pandemic because it uh, got hard? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I see my lovely teacher now and then, and, I, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to go <laughs> be back. Um, uh, no, I mean, I would, you know, if I was doing a bit of yoga, which I do occasionally, it would be that series, you know, the primary series. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, you're always getting back to it. It's a, but it's, it's a, I mean, when it's you say receding, isn't it? It's always just nearly there. It feels that way. But it, I, I feel like when you talk about breaking the tension of like pre-publication, I've always found that exercise, like doing yoga or something, just is a nice way to sort of like. I, I know, know if you can get out of the chair and away from the screen, if you can break that, you know. Right. Yeah. So we did a bit of cycling as well. So let's go. And, th- and now here you are. You're just launched into your publicity cycle. I know. I hope I'm catching you early. You seem like you... It's just started. It started yesterday. I went down to Galway and back last night. And it's this is kind of day one. I'm so delighted to be in it. It's like getting into the, a cold sea. 
It's okay. great. It's fun. It's well, fun. good. I, but I'm, I'm very pleased to be catching you early because in my experience, it's better to get an author at the beginning of their tour than yeah. at the end. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know. Do they get cranky? Well, they just, I think they've said the same thing, you know, how many different ways can you give an interview about a book, you know, so you start to get maybe some of the things they've repeated, you know, and I don't know, it's just nice to catch people when they're just, yeah. just launching. Sure. I, I was never very good at, at, at doing rote, you know, I mean, I, it, it, I was never good at that, at learning off what I should be saying. And the other thing is, American authors are so competent and professional, they can tell you what their book is about. And I want to say, oh, I don't know what it's about. It's the, but it's the <laughs> I worst. I have no idea what it's about. It's the Please worst, tell me. It's the worst question to ask an author, I think. What's yeah. your book about? And it's a natural question, but it's like, you know, maybe as a self-defense mechanism, you just, you know, you land on the elevator pitch or some kind of shorthand yeah. but it's a it's not a question i like either like and also you make it up after the fact you write the book and then you invent what it's about if you're the kind of writer that you are and i think maybe i lean more this way as well like somebody who's not writing out a detailed outline somebody who's mm -hmm. in, intuiting their way through it mm -hmm. uh, i want to before i let you go i want to ask you a bit more about the writing practice uh you know, that you maintain or have had to maintain over the years to get all these books done. As I said earlier, there does feel like there's just like a lot of creative freedom. There's a sense of play in the language. Mm -hmm. And I guess that, I, I think you would probably say that's the case. You also have to couple that with some discipline. Like you do have to show up regularly. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about how you get the work done? Well, the thing about it being creative or, you know, that there, there's some kind of pleasure in the process, I mean, that's absolutely vital. You can't spend 30 years doing a boring fucking sloggy job, okay? It's terrible. Why be a writer if it's a slog? So I wouldn't say I am clearly not disciplined in any way, in any other kind of uh, part of my life. I'm, I'm, I do water my potted plants. That's a discipline. They look healthy. Um, I'm seeing them they, right they, now. They're, they're looking good um, and uh, they grow. And that, that's all very exciting. But one of the tricks is I don't do anything else. You know, I don't do anything else. So it's not really a discipline. So if you say, what time of day do I write? I write any time, all the time. I like writing. I make it enjoyable. How, how? How do you make it enjoyable for yourself? Uh, by not over planning and failing, by not going in there and failing every day is, is one way of, in, by, ex, by being explorative rather than um, reaching for something that pre-exists. And that would be, because you say by not failing every day, meaning like not giving yourself some out of reach goal that's going to make you feel bad about the process yeah i was i actually have clearly changed my mind because i used to think that writing was all about creative shortfall you have this grand beautiful idea and, and and the book is just the book always but that's not how i've begun to feel in the last few books i feel that i'm just kind of uh trying something out so does this mean that your first drafts are really messy and that you that you do a lot of revising and fixing up I, I don't do a first draft, so by the time I put the last full stuff on, that's my one hundred and twenty-five thousand draft, and yeah, I'm done. That's how I am too. I, I this okay. is so you're editing as you go. Yeah, so I reach the end point, 
and you're done. And of course, then you have to, you know, deal with the publication or whatever. You have to go back and fix all kinds of stuff. But when I ha- but, but I arrive at the end point after many, many, many drafts along the way. So when you sit down for a session of work, are you rereading most of what you've already done each day? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, what do you do? So yeah, you're you're rewriting mostly, and you and and in it certainly. You rewrite as a way of tricking yourself into writing further forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're rewriting and then suddenly you've got some more. I mean, I think I read somewhere that Don DeLillo used to write a paragraph and wind the typewriter up so that he didn't see the paragraph the next day and then he'd write a new one. And that's kind of a nightmare. I mean, it's amazing. It takes like, oh my God, a heart of stone, not a heart of stone. It takes tough-mindedness to be able to do that. Just so that he, w- he wouldn't get hung up on the previous day's work? Yeah, so to, as a way of proceeding. But again, it's like a long haul flight. Do not think about the destination and you will be all, and you won't get agitated by not being there yet. And do you and you say you don't do anything else, so that does this mean you write most days? Yeah. And I write at the weekends. And you know, I mean it is bad news all around actually because I just write all the time. Well, but you love it. I do like it, sure. And what about your reading? habits i know that now that your kids have grown you probably have more time to read and that's always that's part of the i think that's part of it you have to be well fed in order to be able to produce sure so Uh, yeah i'm I'm kind of bound a little bit by current work because it's so you know it's kind of lively here and so i i it's hard for me to go back into work that you know, he's 50, 60 years old because there's always somebody posting something through your door. Please read this. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit. Um, the major revolution in my reading life has been a garden chair. Getting outside. Yeah. Read a book. No phone. Beautiful. No phone. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe a phone. I find, here's what I find. I mean, A, I can get distracted and just like pick up the phone and like check social media. But I find that if I'm reading, let's say I'm reading your novel and you start referencing someplace in Ireland that just sounds lovely, suddenly like I'm on, what was it called? Yeah. Tullamore? <laughs> like yeah, on, yeah. And, Tullamore, there's, yeah. and then there's like Tullamore Dew and I'm like, oh, there's whiskey. I did this. I'll start to like look for pictures because mm. I want to get a frame of reference and then all of a sudden like 10 minutes ago. Actually, I do by. that when I'm writing. I'm very happy for you to do that. I don't mind. I mean, there is a distinction for me between books that don't let you escape from them and books that make you look up and think. Yeah. So I don't mind a book that makes me look up and think. And, and these days it's look up and click away sometimes. I don't really mind that. Yeah. I mean, looking at some lovely pictures and, and Tullamore Dew. That's a very, I mean, apparently, according, okay. according to Google, it's a very famous mm-hmm, <laughs> whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from that, that place. But it's, uh, it's a lovely book. It's just masterfully done. And I am uh, so grateful to you as you set out on this very busy tour. I know you have a flight to catch. Uh, that you were willing to give me some of your time and uh, just really appreciate it and I wish you well. Thank you. It's lovely being talking. I mean, it's really been lovely. Yeah. That's how you get fresh stuff from writers. You ask them nice questions. Okay, folks, there we go. That was Anne Enright. Her new novel, The Wren, The Wren, is available now from W.W. Norton & Company. She is on Instagram and I think that's it for her on the internet as far as I could find. So you're just going to have to read her books. Once again, the latest novel is called The Wren, The Wren. It is excellent. Go get your copy right away. 
Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Sign up for my newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Join the Other People Patreon community and help keep this show going over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a moment and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating. And if it's possible to write a review, write a little review. It helps the show find new listeners. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You should read it. Check it out. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my book, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Mona Awad. She has a new novel out called Rouge. We had a great talk. It's coming up, so stay tuned.